All right, so we're going to be looking this morning at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, and we're going to read through verse 11. And so I want to invite you, wherever you are, whether you're watching online or whether you're here this morning, to stand uh, as we read God's Word together. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, and reading through verse 11. Hear the Word of the Lord. John writes, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word, and you have the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, but the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning, good morning, good morning. It is good to be gathered with you, beloved. I'm so thankful to see those of you who are here. I am so thankful for those of you who are watching online. And as Pastor John says, I know I bring it up, I bring it up every week, but we are waiting for the day when this place can be full again. Uh, waiting for the day where chairs aren't spaced out, where we're at right now less than 30% capacity and we can't wait for that day and what a good day it's going to be. If you're joining us for the first time on our live stream, you're visiting with us this morning. My name is Pastor Michael. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to serve as the, uh, the lead pastor here uh, of New Breed Church. And where we are, we're in the book of First John. We're actually in the middle of a series, so you're still fairly early on if you're just now tuning in. And, and if you want to catch up, you can follow up uh, some of these sermons on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can catch up if you'd like. Uh, but the series through First John, the entire series, we've entitled The True Christian Life. The True Christian Life. And again, what John is doing in this letter is that John is encouraging believers with how to live in a world that's filled with falsehood. And more specifically, how to live when those falsehoods begin to cause strife and division within the church, he is calling them to actively live the true Christian life. You know, basically what's going on, brothers and sisters, is that as John is writing this, there is, there's a bunch of infighting in the church over truth claims. And people are actually leaving the church. People are proving that they believe lives. And John's primary concern, as we've repeated in every sermon so far, his primary concern is not that Christians have all the right arguments, all the right things to say, all the right ways to counter the false claims that are being presented. Now that's important, and John's going to deal with those false claims, but ultimately the overall umbrella of this letter is one where John simply wants to encourage believers to live the true Christian life, to live correctly in the midst of those falsehoods. And throughout the book, John has reiterated this point. Give you a couple of examples. First John 2 1, what we looked at last week, he says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. First John 2 28. So now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourself against idols. You know, we have stressed, and I want to reiterate again, that this book is so helpful for us in our day and age. 
Because like what was going on when John was writing this, there has been in every day and age and every season, including ours, those who would step into the church and proclaim false truths. Which is somewhat of an oxymoron, but, but false claims. Jesus warned against this. The, the apostles warned against it about being on guard for those that would come in in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And, and it's, it happened in John's time. And to be honest, it's happening in our day and age, if you don't believe me, just look on Twitter and follow some Christians. You'd be amazed at how one Christian can claim this thing and another Christian can claim the complete opposite, and yet somehow they both are right? No, there's division, there's strife. And it's been that way in every season of the church. And throughout different seasons of the church, different saints have appreciated the book of 1 John. For example, St. Augustine once noted about the book of 1 John, he said that this book is very sweet to every healthy Christian heart that savors the bread of God. And it should constantly be in the mind of God's holy church. And the reason, brothers and sisters, that it should be constantly on our minds is because it forces us to remember, listen to me, it forces us to remember that truth without righteous living is meaningless. And on the flip side, righteous living without truth amounts to nothing. Let me, let me say that again, that truth without righteous living is meaningless. And righteous living without truth amounts to nothing. We know it amounts to nothing because Scripture tells us it amounts to nothing. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul tells us that anything done outside of faith is sin. So Paul would argue there's no concept of righteous living without truth. But here's why, why I stress this reality this morning. Well, one, because the Bible stresses this reality. But two... Because often in the life of the church, and this isn't just the American church, this is just the church at large, often at the tr uh, in the church we've, we've gotten this wrong. This idea that truth without righteous living is meaningless and righteous living without truth amounts to nothing. Let me, let me give you some examples. You know, I grew up very much in Christian circles that emphasized knowing the truth. Right? You, you have to have right doctrine. You have to understand Scripture in its context. You have to be able to do proper exegesis. You have to make sure that you, you let the Bible interpret the Bible and don't make the Bible say anything it doesn't. You must know truth and know it accurately. And listen to me, I'm good with all of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I pray that that would be the case for you. I'm thankful for all of that. But the problem is not with any of that. The problem is that that's the only thing that's been highlighted. And it's lacking some explanation. You see, because there's often been very little effort giving to explaining and emphasizing how the truth that you know, how your handling of Scripture is essential not just to think the right things, but it is essential so that you live the right way. But oftentimes people have been scared to talk about living right and obedience because we want to call it legalism, we want to call it moralism. So on the one hand, you have this elevation of truth with no emphasis on how we live. But on the flip side of that, I've heard many say, and to be honest with you, I had a conversation with someone, I think it was two, maybe three weeks ago now, who actually said this exact thing to me. They said, all that doctrine is useless. What matters is how we live. And he said, we are called to be salt and light, not scholars. I would agree that we are called to be salt and light. I would agree that there's no, no verse in Scripture that I can point to that calls me to be a scholar. But there are verses in Scripture that tell me to know truth because the truth sets me free. And I think what this person was getting at is kind of what we're trying to highlight is that there are so many people that their faith is merely lived out in their head and never with their feet, never with their hands. So there are some who would think that a rich understanding, say, of the atonement is useless. You just have to love. But what they fail to grasp is that your love depends on a rich understanding of the atonement. 
Because in that understanding, you come to understand the depths of God's love that he has for us, and that's meant to be reflected in your own lives. John's going to say just a little bit later in 1 John 4 that we love because he first loved us. And so if we don't know the truth of how God loves us, we will never walk out that love. And so what I'm getting at, I know I said a lot there, what I'm getting at is that there is a temptation to either value truth or to value righteousness or righteous living above the other. But in essence, what we are doing is we are pitting two things against each other that the Bible never pits against each other. Let me reiterate what I said a moment ago, that truth without righteous living is meaningless and righteous living without truth amounts to nothing. And listen, this isn't simply my take. This is what John is communicating in 1 John 1 and 2 to his hearers. As he's speaking about walking in light, what John is communicating is that both right thinking and right living mesh together beautifully so that we can be found walking in the light. You know, what we read in our text this morning is, is honestly, it's, it's a continuation of the conversation that we started last week. So if you remember last week, John grounds everything that he's about to say in this truth in chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. Do you remember that? That God is light. He grounds everything in that. And so let me recap what we said very briefly in case you weren't here or you forgot or you weren't listening. It's a good reminder. We talked about how when, when John makes the statement that God is light, he's pointing us to something when he says light. We, we talked about how light in Scripture, as well as most other religious practices, that light is most commonly speaking of truth and righteousness. Both truth and righteousness. Again, if you want a further explanation on that, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. But, but when, jo when John says that God is light, he is pointing us to God's holiness and that he is the foundation and standard of every truth and every righteous action. But then John calls the Christians who are listening or who are reading this to walk in that light. And so what John says is listen, we want you to walk in every truth and to walk out every righteous act. You know, last week in our sermon, we addressed, honestly, we addressed the truth aspect of God is life. Right? We talked about how if we're going to walk in the light, it begins with viewing God correctly and it begins with viewing ourselves correctly. All of that has to do with the truth that we believe. Do we see God as Scripture paints paints God to be? And do we understand us and our need for Him as Scripture paints it for us? So in other words, we have to believe the right things about God and we have to believe right things about us. We have to know truth. But this week, John picks up on the second part of walking in light and he says, listen, not only do you have to believe right things, that's not enough, but you have to live righteous lives. And so what John is going to do in our text this morning, and what I want to draw your attention to is John, John is going to flesh out for us the need, the need for obedience in our lives. And so as we dissect this text this morning, there are three truths about obedience that I want you to see. Three things that I want you to see about obedience that I believe John is pointing us to consider. So here is, here's the first truth about obedience this morning. Obedience matters. Obedience matters. Look again at verses 3 through 6. John says, this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him. In verse 6, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Right? So he's building off of what he's already said in chapter 1, 5 through chapter 2, 2, where he speaks of knowing God. And so then he says here in verse 3, listen, if you really want to know that you know him, if you want to kind of validate whether the truth that is in your head is accurate and that you actually believe it, 
Listen to me, this is very important. If we want to know that the truth we say we believe, that the truth we claim we have in our head, if we want to know if we truly believe it, if we want to have confidence that we believe correctly, we have to examine how we live. Because obedience is not optional for the believer. Obedience is the natural outworking of truly knowing God. He explains that it doesn't matter if you say ultimately that you know God. Because in verse 4, he says, The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, now I want to pause for a second because that is a weighty verse of Scripture. That the one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Listen to me. The evidence of our faith as repeated time and time again in Scripture will be revealed in how we live. And if we truly encounter Jesus, brothers and sisters, it changes everything. An encounter with Jesus changes everything. You know, there's a, there's a picture in Scripture that I love, and some of you guys have heard me use this before, but when I, when I make that statement that an encounter with Jesus changes everything, I'm reminded of John chapter 5. Do you remember the story in John chapter 5 at this pool of Bethesda? So you see, what, what happened was that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, and there was this pool, a literal pool, in Bethesda, and the way that the tradition worked, and it very well was likely a tradition, but that, that at a certain time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the water, and the first person who got in that water would be healed. And so as John's recording his gospel and talking about the life of Jesus, Jesus approaches a man who it says had been an invalid for 38 years of his life. So let's just assume, right, that for 38 years of his life, this dude has been an invalid probably for almost all of his life. And he's waiting by this pool. He is trying to get in so that he could be healed. And Jesus approaches him. And Jesus does something that I think we often overlook, but it's absolutely fascinating in the story. Jesus looks at this man who's been an invalid for 38 years, and he says, do you want to be made well? Now, when we read that, we probably think, well, what a stupid question, Jesus. Let's be honest. That's probably what we're thinking. What, what a dumb question. Of course he wants to be made well. This dude has been trying to like crawl his way into this pool, try to, trying to make himself well. He wants to be healed. But the reason that Jesus asks that question is so significant because ultimately what Jesus is asking the man in John chapter 5 is, do you want me, do you truly want me to change everything that you've ever known? Because think about it with me. An invalid most likely got his money from begging on the street. If Jesus heals him, he's not going to be able to beg for money because no one's going to give an able-bodied person money. This dude has spent a lot of his time chilling around that pool. He's probably met other people who are trying to get into that pool and to be healed. Do you think that if Jesus heals him, there might be a hint of jealousy on their part? This dude's probably going to have to change his friend group. So when Jesus asked this question, do you want to be made well? What Jesus is asking him is, do you want me to change everything that you've ever known? And I want you to track with me here because that physical picture teaches us a powerful spiritual lesson. That an encounter with Jesus will change everything it has to or else it is not a true encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus changes everything. And I believe, brothers and sisters, honestly, that so many of us can struggle with this. And maybe, maybe this is just my speculation. Maybe this isn't you, but I do think I'm on to something here. I believe that so many of us can struggle with this because we really don't want Jesus to change everything. We really just want Jesus as Savior, but we don't want Him as Lord. We want the benefits of salvation without the expectations of a Lord. 
But the problem, brothers and sisters, is that in Scripture, Jesus, is, Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as Lord are inseparable. I think of Peter when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2, and he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. Hear me, brothers and sisters, and I say this with love. I know it's heavy. I know it's thick. Bear with me because next week we're going to get into just some of the benefits of, of having the gospel. John kind of realizes that, man, I've been laying it on heavy, so let me just remind you of some of the good things the gospel has provided. But, but I want you to hear me that we cannot have Jesus as Savior and neglect him as the Lord of our lives. We cannot have Jesus as Savior and not as the one who gets to dictate the terms and expectation of our union with Him. And I want you to hear me. Jesus does. He gets to define the relationship that we have with Him. He gets to dictate the terms of this fellowship and not us. And let's be honest, sometimes we want our relationship with Jesus on our terms. We want Him to do what we want Him to do. We want Him to make us feel the way that we want to feel. We want to engage with Him and walk with Him on our terms and not His. But the problem is, is that if Jesus is Lord, He gets to dictate the terms of the relationship. But here's the thing that I want to say about that. Jesus' Lordship is not a burden to bear but a joy that we should delight in. Jesus' lordship is not meant to be a burden to bear, but a joy that we should delight in. Why? Because Jesus will never lead us somewhere. He will never call us to something. He will de never demand of us anything that is not for our good. It is a joy to have Jesus as Lord, but that doesn't make it easy. I want to remind you this morning that our Savior is a good, good Savior. And He loves us. So obedience, submission to the Lordship of Jesus, obedience should be a joy. But what John is communicating is that even if you don't see it that way, if you are a believer, it is necessary. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. He says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Now, I want to mention a couple things about verse 6. And listen, I'm not skipping over verse 5. I'm going to come back to it in a, in a little bit. But I want to mention a couple things about verse 6 where he says, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. This verse teaches us two very important things. First, it teaches us that obedience is defined by walking as Jesus walked. Again, brothers and sisters, we take our cues of what obedience looks like by looking to Jesus and how he lived. We don't take our, our cues for obedience from social media. We don't take our cues from, from obedience based off of what other people say or what other people do or what other people think. Ultimately, we don't take our cues of what, is, of what obedience is from, from pastors. and people. No, Ultimately, we take our cues for what is obedience as we examine Jesus and how he walked. Now, ideally, pastors and people like that are proclaiming how Jesus walked. But we take our cues of what obedience looks like by looking to Jesus and how he lives. And I know, I know that this may seem somewhat basic, but I, as I look around and as I see Christians interacting and arguing and as I see divisions and strife, I think we need to go back to some of those fundamental questions of, of would Jesus do this? Would Jesus say this? Would Jesus act like this? Would Jesus tweet this? The only way we will walk as He walked, though, is if we we know Him and how He lived. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, I actually shared this with someone this week, one of the things that I try to do every year towards the start of the year, I'm getting ready to start it in the next couple of weeks, is I like to take one of the Gospels 
And I like to study through it and ask every chapter one question. And I write them down. I write them down in my journal. I could show you year after year journals where I'm, I'm answering this one question. Who is Jesus? Last year, I did it through the book of Mark. And as you read through it and you ask that question, you'll see that, man, Jesus is a man of compassion. He walked out compassion. Jesus is a man of forgiveness. He walked out forgiveness. Jesus is a man of love. He walked out love. Jesus is a man of honesty. He walked out honesty. And I do this to remind myself of who this Jesus is that I'm called to follow. But we will never walk as he walked if we don't know how he walked. We need the word of God in order to understand who our Savior is. But the second thing that verse 6 reminds us of is that verse 6 offers a little bit of encouragement if you feel like you are dropping the ball in terms of your obedience. Because listen, what John is not saying, I want you to pay attention. This is very important for this sermon. Because I know there can be a temptation to feel guilt and shamed into obedience, and that is not my goal. So I want you to hear this part. If you feel like you are dropping the ball in terms of obedience, what John is not saying is that if you are ever disobedient, you are proving to not be a Christian. Because just like in chapter 1, verse 6, we have to look again at that word walk. Do you remember it? Peripateo in the Greek. And just like we said last week about walking in light and walking in darkness, what John is not trying to articulate is that if you struggle with sin, if you struggle with obedience, you are proving yourself to not be a Christian. No, that word walk is very important because again, it it reminds us to examine not a moment, but the pattern of our life. If the pattern of our life is one where we are content to live in our disobedience and content to live in our rebellion against God, then yes, absolutely, there is a high chance that we might not be a Christian. But John is not saying, listen, because you were disobedient today, you've proved yourself not to be a believer. No, it goes back to what we talked about last week. The struggle matters. We will struggle to be obedient. We will falter and fail frequently. Day by day, we will fail at being obedient. But see, what John, what John wants, to ex- wants us to examine is our walk. Are we fighting for obedience? Are we striving for righteous living? Or are we content to live in our disobedience? So hear me, just because you struggle with obedience, it does not mean that you are not a Christian. But I want to warn you that if the pattern of your life is one where you genuinely don't care about walking as Jesus walked, John is warning you to examine your soul. And I want to acknowledge this, brothers and sisters. I want to acknowledge that obedience is hard. I say that as your pastor, as someone who has served in some sort of pastoral ministry for over almost 10 years now, I think over 10 years now, I can tell you that it's still hard. We battle the flesh and we will struggle with sin. And while obedience matters, we will struggle. But here's the second truth this morning that I hope will be an encouragement to you in light of the fact that obedience is hard. Here's the second truth. Obedience is possible. So not only does obedience matter, but two, obedience is possible. Look at what John writes in verses 7 and 8. He says, dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him. Who's the him? You can talk. Jesus, right. So I am writing you a new command, which is true in Jesus and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And what John is highlighting in these two verses is that the call to obedience is not a new call. It's existed from the beginning. Right? Obedience was expected when God created the world back in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And here it is. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. There was, in the creation of Adam and Eve, an expectation of obedience. 
And yet we know that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And since Adam and Eve sinned, humanity has been predisposed to disobedience. That's why it's hard. Because obedience isn't our natural bent as human beings. Disobedience is. But this does not mean, just because Adam and Eve sinned and we are predisposed to sin, it does not mean that obedience is no longer expected. Because even after sin entered the world, God gave His law. There was an expectation of obedience. Deuteronomy 26, 18. And today, the Lord has affirmed that you are His possession as He promised you, that you are to keep all of His commands. There was an expectation of obedience. And we know that Israel failed to be obedient. James 2.10 reminds us that whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. And James 2.10 reminds us that not a one of us has been obedient. Now you may be thinking, man, Michael, I thought you said that this was going to be the encouraging part. Well, here it comes, okay? Look again at verse 8. John says, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so what John does is he mentions this new command. And this new command is, is meant to point us to consider Christ. I love how, how Dr. Van Est explains this in his commentary when he, he looks at this, this verse of Scripture. And he says this, listen to me, he says, In another sense, this commandment is not, or this commandment is now new in light of Christ's resurrection and ascension. The darkness passing away and the true light already shining refers to the breaking in of the kingdom of God. The darkness is not completely gone, but now, listen, now because of Christ's decisive victory, the new era has begun. Thus, this commandment is more than what could have been stated by Moses or even understood by the hearers of Jesus previously. In light of Christ's ultimate fulfillment of this command and with his self-sacrifice at the cross and resulting powerful presence before the Father in his mediatorial role, this command has new power and possibility of fulfillment among his people. So let me give you the like Michael version of it that's not as intellectually savvy. In other words, Christ has fulfilled the requirement of obedience on our behalf. He has fulfilled the law. Romans 10.4, right? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so as we are united to Him in faith, not only are we seen as positionally righteous before God, but now, for the first time, because of Christ's death and resurrection and because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us through faith, we can pursue obedience to overcome sin. Ultimately, what John is saying in these two verses, because Jesus died and rose from the dead, because he conquered the law, you now, by the Spirit's power, can do what you never could have done before, what Israel failed to do, what Adam and Eve failed to do. You can now pursue obedience. Why? Because the Spirit of God fights for the children of God's sanctification and obedience. The Spirit empowers us to care about obedience. The Spirit strengthens us as we pursue obedience. And the Spirit convicts us to draw us out of disobedience. And all of this is because of Christ's work on the cross. And brothers and sisters, this should motivate us to pursue obedience. Because we can now pursue it because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It is no longer a futile effort to pursue obedience. Because of the Spirit, we can grow in and be obedient to the commands of God. So let me say this. Struggling Christian, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. You might right now be feeling this wave of, man, I'm really not good at this obedience thing. 
I am really struggling. I care about it. I'm fighting for it, but I just can't seem to be obedient in this particular area of my life. I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged. We may battle diligently. We may fail at times, but don't give up because the Spirit of God is working alongside of you to strengthen you and grow you. And you never know when God is finally going to give you a victory in this area to be obedient where you were once disobedient. Do not give Give up. Because of Jesus, we can fight for obedience. Because of Jesus, we can fight for obedience. And Jesus fights alongside us. He has made a way through the Spirit's power. And you know, Ephesians 2 testifies to this. Remember Ephesians 2? You should. I quote it a lot. Right? It starts out in verse 1, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. The prince of the power of the air is not working sons of disobedience. He goes on, he says, Listen, we were by nature children of wrath. We deserve to be punished by God because of our sin. But then he shifts in verse 4 and he says, But God who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. He says, For by grace you have been saved. He goes on, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that no one should boast. But then he says this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to do. In light of Christ Jesus, we now can pursue and be faithful to accomplish these good works. We can be obedient. And it is all because Christ has saved us. Again, brothers and sisters, obedience is hard, but it matters. And in Christ, it is possible. Obedience is possible. Now, Here is the third and final truth that I want you to see this morning in regards to obedience. We're going to bring this thing to a close here in just a couple minutes. I forgot to start my timer on my little like preaching app, and so I started it like five minutes late. So in my mind, that means I have five minutes more than I do. Um, that's all right. We're going to roll with it. Amen? Here's the third point that I have. Sorry, the third reality we want to consider about obedience, that love, love is both the foundation and evidence of true obedience. That love is both the foundation and the evidence of true obedience. I told you I was going to go back to verse 5, so look back at verse 5 with me again. It says, But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. Now jump back down to verses 9 through 11. John says, The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I know, brothers and sisters, that it is easy to hear a sermon like this and think, man, It is my duty to be obedient. I have to will myself to be obedient. Maybe it's just me, but sometimes when I hear sermons like this, that's where my mind goes. I I have to do it. It's my duty. I have to will myself to be obedient in those areas where I'm being disobedient. And while I agree that obedience is our duty as citizens of heaven, we will never will ourselves there. Hear me. There is not enough motivation nor power in our will to be obedient long term there is not enough motivation nor power in our will to be obedient long term yes i'll be the first to acknowledge you might be able to will yourself to obedience for a day maybe a week maybe a month but you cannot will yourself to obedience long term But what John is communicating there in verse 5 is that love for God is the motivation we need to be obedient. 
A genuine and true love for God is the motivation we need to be obedient. Love for God provides the power we need to be obedient. And any obedience, brothers and sisters, any obedience that will last begins with and is built on a foundation of love. Let me put it plainly for you. Or at least what I think is plainly. When we understand the depths of what God has done for us through Christ, when we understand the weight of the cross and the majesty of God's love put on display, it should drive us to love Him. And that love will be shown by a willingness to obey Him. John Stott notes this. I like this. He says that true love for God This is very important. True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. Then he goes on and gives a bunch of scriptures to back this up, and he ends and he says this, the proof of love is loyalty. Now let me go back to something that I said earlier. We don't get to dictate the terms of our relationship. And I think many of us, if we're honest, want a love that is based on sentimental language. We want a love that is based on mystical experience. We want God to just trickle down this feeling in us that will last for all of our days. But we don't get to define the terms of the relationship. And Stott is on to something here when he says that true love for God is not expressed in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. And the proof of love is loyalty. The foundation has to be love or else obedience will not last. But notice what John says. He says, as we love and it shows up in our obedience, then the love of God is made complete. And so what he means is that love will always reveal itself. True love always shows up in what we do. True love always shows up in what we do. Words will, in, will only get us so far. And I don't really need to explain this to you because anyone who has ever been in any type of human relationship knows this to be true. If you have been a parent, if you have been a child, if you have been a friend, if you have been a student, if you have, especially if you've been a spouse, you know that true love always shows itself in what we do. Let me give you a practical example. I can tell my wife all day long that I love her and care about her. I can can tell her that I care about her resting. I can tell her that I care about her mental sanity. Especially now as she's wrestling children in and out. I can say all of these things. But if my actions never back that up, she'll know it's not true. She'll know it's not true. True love always shows up in what we do. And what John wants us to see is that when our actions match our words in regards to our true obedience to God, then the love of God is made complete in us. And I don't want you to miss this. John makes it a point to note that the evidence of love is not only displayed in our relationship with God, but it's, re- it's displayed in our relationship with one another. And this shouldn't shock us, brothers and sisters, because he's already said that in chapter 1. He reminded us that fellowship with God and fellowship with one another are intimately linked. You can't separate them. To put it plainly, you cannot say you love God and hate His people. You cannot say you love His people and hate God. So John ties our love not just to God, but also to the saints around us. And this is beautiful because in essence, he is reminding us of what Jesus taught us when he summed up the whole law and what it would look like to be obedient. Jesus said, listen, you'll know that you're obedient when the love of God is made complete. And when the love of God is is complete, he says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. Love. It's love lived out in relationship to God and relationship to one another. It's the fulfillment of God's command. It is obedience. 
So love is not only foundation, it's the evidence. It's the evidence of our obedience. And what this should do is cause us to examine our love. Let me ask you two questions. Do you genuinely love God? Does your life reflect that in your desire to walk as Jesus walked? Do you care about the things that God cares about? Do you flee the things that God tells you to flee from? Are you day in and day out fighting to live a life of love that shows itself as obedience? And the second question is, do you love the body of Christ? Not just tolerate them. Not just hang out with them, but do you love them to the point that you are fighting to see the spiritual flourishing of the people that are around you? Listen, do you dread church on Sundays? It's just a basic application. Do you do you do it just because you have to do it? Or is this something that you just long to come back to, to be around the saints, to gather and to pour out love on the brothers and sisters that God has united to you in covenant family? Because That's love displayed. But without love, there is no obedience. And without obedience, we are proving that we are still walking in darkness. So let me wrap this up this morning. Let me say this. Let me offer you some encouragement if you've heard all this and think still I'm really struggling with obedience, Pastor. John is going to write later on in this book. We'll come to it in a few weeks. In 1 John 4, 19, I mentioned it earlier, we love because He first loved us. When we feel like our obedience is absent or fragile at best, a good starting place is not to try to muster up the duty to be obedient. A good starting place is to go back to God's love for you. Listen, we need the gospel. And I want you to hear me. I don't mean we simply need to hear the story, though that's where it begins. I mean, we need the grace of the gospel. We need to remember truth, the truth that has changed us, the truth that has set us free. We need to remember that God created us not because he needed us, but because he wanted to love us. But our first parents rejected that love. They sacrificed their covenantal relationship for something much less. They played the whore and sold their body and soul for a lie. And their blood was tainted. And their blood flows through our veins. And like them, we all have sinned. We have all fall short of the glory of God. We too chose lust over love. We chose darkness over light. We chose death over life. And yet, God loves us still. And when God set in place a new law to protect us, we found new and creative ways to revolt and rebel and to declare to God that we don't need your love. And at times, we may have longed for him, but the separation of our causing was already too great. And throughout history, man has tried to reach God. We've built towers and they fell. We created images and they rusted. We set up kings and they died. We could not reach him and we could not replace him. And when it seemed, brothers and sisters, as if all hope was lost, when it seemed as if there was no way to get to God, He did the unthinkable. He did the unimaginable. He revealed that He still loved us. And God came to us. He sent His Son, Jesus. And this Jesus wrapped Himself in our flesh and took on our struggles. He walked our roads and felt our pain. And throughout all of it, He did what we could never do. He remained faithful to God. A relationship unbroken. A fellowship unhindered. He was worthy of our worship and yet we hated Him still. And this Jesus went to the cross, and there he bled and died. And as his blood was shed, there was a way for ours to be purified. And he stood naked and ashamed so our shame could be covered. He breathed his last breath so that we could breathe life for the first time. 
And though we deserve to die, He drank death's cup for us. He stood in the gap and the cross on which He was crucified was our escape from this world of darkness, death, and distance to a place of life and light and nearness to the God that we had forsaken. And three days later, He raised from the dead. And this is an ever-present declaration that one day all things will be made new. One day these sin-stained bodies will be no more. One day we too will be raised to walk in newness of life. And then obedience will no longer be a struggle. Our love will not waver because we will stare at the face of love perfected. And all of this is true because God loves us. And this truth should ravish our souls. This truth should inflame our emotions. And this truth should make us long to serve such an amazing Savior. This is our King. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. And what a privilege to serve and be obedient to Him. And brothers and sisters, it's all. It's all because of His grace and mercy. It is all because He loves us. See, we need the gospel every day. It was Martin Luther who said, it is therefore extremely necessary that we come to know this doctrine, the gospel, well. And we constantly inculcate it. Or in other words, we teach it to ourselves. We implant it in ourselves. We imprint it on ourselves. We need these truths every day and they will push us and drive us to obedience when we stand in awe and wonder at the fact that God could love us. But the last thing that I want to say is this. If you are here this morning, if you are watching this morning and you are not a Christian, know that I love you. But know that you cannot be obedient. You cannot please God. You cannot do anything that will bring Him glory or honor. Everything you do is considered sin to him and you are destined to die and go to hell. But that blood that we just talked about that was shed, that body that was broken, that blood still saves. That cross still stands in the gap to provide a way for us to be made right with God. We all sin. We all deserve death and hell and separation. And yet God loves us so much that he sent Jesus. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus. And we can be made right with him through faith by trusting in what he has done on the cross as our only means of being made right with God. And by repenting of our sins, by turning away from them and running after God. And I want you to know that if you are not a believer, you can be one this moment by placing your faith in Jesus. And if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you. But let me again quote Stott, and then I'm going to end. True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. The proof of love is loyalty. And my prayer is that we would be a people who are loyal, who walk in the light.